0: Welcome to GovActually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the Fed Scoop Radio Network.
1: And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this
0: pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back with another episode of Gov Actually. And this is a um, this is an epic episode. This is a milestone. This is um, it's uh it's episode L in Roman numerals.
1: What's the wedding thing? It's like silver, gold, what 50? Do you
0: know? Uh, I think I think at 50 you're talking diamond. I think oh, at 50 years. Wow. Did you get me one? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Where's my gift? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, cubic zirconium. They're better than diamonds.
1: Oh, um, well, I'll take it. Yeah.
0: A manufactured gemstone. And therefore you can be sure of its origin and not concerned about any negative impacts it may have had on on societies.
1: Yes, because I did see the movie Blood Diamond. And yeah, it
0: was yeah.
1: horrifying. Great, great movie, but just well, I don't know that it's one of those movies I don't know I can watch again because it was so so difficult.
0: Did you um, see? It? But- yeah, I definitely saw Blood uh, Blood Diamond. Um, uh, there was one I saw actually uh, recently that um, that dealt with fires. Um, you know, we want to talk about disturbing documentaries, uh, just the phenomenon of wildfires and and uh, you know the possibility that climate change is uh, influencing the uh, and increasing the prevalence of them. Yeah we just went through a crazy storm (laughs) yesterday and, and my daughter, uh, you know, lives in Portland when she goes to school and they had 115 degree heat there. So, um, but you know, it's, it's moments like these, that you sit back and you reflect and, and you think about like, well, what is it that that's motivated us to have these conversations, um, to find these guests, um, to work together, uh, and then what, what will motivate us going forward. And I actually, this weekend, was listening to uh, an NPR station and randomly on came a, an encore edition. I mean, seriously, encore edition of Car Talk. And I realized for me, that's like the OG, the original podcast for me. That's like the, the two folks with some uh, fascination, if not deep skill or knowledge in a subject matter having conversations and, and inviting guests to talk about something that's important to them. And I'm, I, I was, I was thinking, well, is that, was that my inspiration? Was that my deep motivation? These two guys with Massachusetts accents um, making fun of uh, themselves. And uh, you know, I, I realized when I joke about us having 12 listeners, I realized I just stole that from car car talk. When I heard one of the guys say, you know, our eight listeners will be men.
1: Got it, now I know the inspiration. It's like yeah. learning, you know, it's like your favorite rock band and who was their influence. Um, yeah, I think there's something, you know, to uh, people getting together who wanna to geek out on the same thing, whether it's like bird watchers getting together or gearheads getting together, or, you know, people that love to drive Corvettes and fix Corvettes and they have, and for me, it's like, it's government um, and I'm really uh, getting into presidential history, too. You know, we had Dave Fisher on one of our episodes and talked about the presidents and went back and unpacked like, you know, the truth behind Hamilton and Jefferson. And from that, he recommended uh, some different uh books to me. And I've been like kind of going down this rapid hole of presidential history. And so I'm like, where, where, where can I meet people to talk about like, you know, Adams, you know, so <laughs> I, so for me, it's like, I love talking about well, government.
0: I, I think it depends on the Adams really. But, um, you sent me the link, uh, to that CNN article that was, uh, that had all the presidential historians ranking the presidents. And that was a fascinating- C-SPAN, C-SPAN, yeah. Oh, C-SPAN, sorry, yeah, all right. I knew it began with a C. Um, and I, I just- I,
1: I take issue with that list of top 10 presidents, that okay. list of top 10 presidents who dealt with crisis well, um, and having, be- I'm in the middle of a deep dive on Adams, and I think John Adams' accomplishments are way overlooked. And Jefferson's accomplishments are way pumped up. But that's you're for reading, a different podcast. You're reading
0: yeah. the Adams book, it sounds like. I am. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But I
1: just that. finished the Jefferson book. So I'm mm-hmm. doing a balance of both. So um, but this is a different podcast, uh, Dan. So we need to like go back to today's government. And, um, right. you know, you mentioned climate change. I'm thinking about all the various topics we've covered over the past 50 episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we've done climate change, it, it's justice. We did a very, what I thought it was a powerful episode on, on gun control and the and the issues surrounding that. Um, after the uh, that, that moment in time of, of the Muslim ban, we talked about the State Department's role in, um, in, in that effort and I thought that, and had Heather Higginbottom on and that was a highlight. Um, for, for me, in terms of kind of that learning moment, that peeling back the onion layer of, of what goes on behind these, these crises inside government. Well, um, we like talked State about the
0: that State Department channel of um, debate or the dispute channel or something? Do yeah, you that? Where, they, where,
1: they, where, the, where the workforce can essentially send a formal missive up to the Secretary of State saying, we disagree um who knew it's a check and balance within the executive branch and and heather came on to to talk us through it it's a really kind of you know there was some there were many unprecedented moments in in government during the trump era and um and and we had to kind of Try to unpack it from a from a more the geek angle versus the political angle because there's so much politics surrounding all of it and that continues. I was going to say when the when the what we just recently did the discussion on cyber after the Colonial Pipeline attack, and so it's just I think it's a it's a great opportunity as different events happen to uh, to take a different angle a non political angle a learning angle for how the government workforce has to deal with it and prep with it. Obviously we're still uh, dealing with the impacts of, of, of COVID-19. That's a real inflection point uh, for uh, for the world, for the United States, for the US government um, and for state and local governments as well. And so maybe in the second half of this episode, we'll, um, we'll, we'll spend time reflecting on you know, it's almost like it's a different timeline. You know, it's like there was, the world was moving along on a certain timeline and then COVID-19 hit and it changed the timeline. Things got accelerated in terms of the use of technology and, and, um, and it's just like, we're on a different timeline now. And so we should, it would be great. You and I have participated in panel discussions on what this moment means for the future of work is it a strategic opportunity? Is it a strategic challenge? It's both. And we can unpack some of that, but we thought we'd spend the first part of the episode just reflecting on the last 50 episodes, um, what we're doing here at Gov actually, um, thank all, all the people, you know, your joke about the 10 or 12 people, but the reality is, is that there's a huge set of people that reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Facebook or, uh, or when I see them in and around uh, the beltway um, sometimes they cold email me, which I love um, to give us, to give me feedback. Uh, we have people reaching out to be guests, which is also amazing. Cause you know, we want to hear from people that want to come on the, on the podcast so we can geek out on government some more. It's been a, it's been a great ride, Dan.
0: Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. We, we, um... We started this uh, conversation about this conversation in a, in a diner that I don't think exists anymore in Bethesda. And uh, um, I just really appreciate your, your enthusiasm and interest and willingness and persistence in, in seeing this through. We, there are some times where I think it was uh, complicated to try to have a thoughtful operations-focused nonpartisan discussion within the context of everything that's been going on in the last four plus years. And uh, I I just want to thank you for making sure we continually maintained an even keel and consistently tried hard to avoid, um, uh, you know, picking sides in any way other than the side that is, you know, the, 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 the question of how things actually work and And then uh, I would have to say if you're partisan in any way, it's partisan in favor of the public servant and the person who shows up every day dedicated to this broader, longer term mission and experiment we call the American government. So uh, it's been fun doing it with you.
1: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I'm cheating a little from the standpoint of like, I learned so much. It's like I get to do this show and then I've, I've always felt like I've been on this long learning journey. I still have so much to learn about different parts of the government, every part of the government, how it works. So, for example, in our very last episode with Steve McMillan on Do Deficits Matter? I'm just sitting there listening to him like, wow, I'm learning a lot uh, just about uh, about the history of how uh, Republicans and Democrats have approached um, the idea of deficit spending, some of the macroeconomics associated with it. It's actually such a critically important part of of public policy and politics to understand like what it really means to to have a deficit. Um, And this whole concept around public finance is fascinating. And in that episode, I just learned a ton. So in some ways it's just like, I'm going to school, uh, I learned from you on these episodes. I learn from our guests. I learn in prepping for these episodes. And so it's just like it's a learning journey,
0: yeah. none of this though sounds like uh, car talk and uh, and the oh. uh, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry,
0: yeah, no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I just uh, um but uh, i I was thinking of you know, the episode we had with amanda Renter- Renteria uh, from Co for America um really drove home for me the fact that we are still in the early innings of the impact and evolution of technology, the, the, um, the change it's gonna have in the way government services are delivered and the people's expectations of how they will receive those services. Issues of um, IT security, transparency, privacy, I think that there's still another 50 episodes we get to do at least. Um, we still haven't talked to anyone from um, the blockchain, you know, uh, around blockchain, and to you know, I think a point you were you were beginning to make was we still haven't talked to anyone on you know the government operations implications of climate change and yeah. climate science. So
1: yeah, we have there's there's a lot of challenge like immense gargantuan challenges out there that that the government faces in what feels to be an increasingly difficult political environment. I think that's one of the reasons why I felt compelled to kind of go down the rabbit hole of history, because one of the things I've wanted to better understand for myself was, is today's political climate really more toxic than it's ever been, or is it just a recency thing? And if you go back and you look at you know the, the battles between Jefferson and Adams, um, was it just as toxic? Was the media just as frustrating at times? Was the, the, the gamesmanship um, and, uh, and you know kind of putting party above country at times, was all that there? And guess what? it was. Um, and so, you know, so kind of the, I'm I'm learning and, and I don't know if that's making me, I guess it's making me feel a little bit better about the situation because, One of my favorite quotes of all time, and I think about it often when I'm feeling down about the state of of the world is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which I translate as the plain language of you take two steps back, but three steps forward, right? right? And so if the reality is, is that our politics were just as toxic during the founding as they are today, and you look at the evolution of this country and the progress that we've made on many, many issues, then even in the face of what feels like impenetrable, partisan, ugly, toxic politics, we still have an opportunity to to advance because we've done it over the course of history.
0: And I'm not sure, but I I think it was Malcolm X who said it doesn't bend on its own. Uh, People got to get up there and start bending, you know? And so I think... um, why don't we? Uh, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we'll we'll get back to the business of bending the arc and uh, talking to people about how government works, so that they can be better informed about being um, um, uh, engaged citizens and understanding the principles and and assisting them in in that in that continued work.
1: Yeah. How do you in, impact uh, How do you impact this journey um, and help uh, help us get where we want to go?
0: And I, yeah, I just think, you know, as a, a journey is, you know, comprised of many, many, many individual actions and understanding, you know, the direction, understanding the topography, understanding, uh, you know, what you're going to confront along the way makes, makes it possible for you to succeed in that work. So I think that's what we're trying to do uh, just a little bit of. Um, and we love people's ideas, suggestions, keep them coming. Uh, we appreciate everyone's engagement there their patience with us uh, as we, as we kind of use this moment for, for our own learning and, and hopefully share some, some ideas that make people think as well. Great. All right. I'll, I'll see you back in just a few minutes. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop radio network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop.
1: Of actually is also supported by the boston consulting group and the center for public impact
0: all right danny we're back uh tanned rested and ready from that extensive break we took um uh how are you feeling are you are you, are you ready to start talking about the future enough of this rear view mirror stuff um
1: yeah let's uh that was a good uh walk through memory lane but uh Let's talk about the future of, of the government. I mentioned that uh, that the timeline has changed due to COVID um, using the movie reference. I just have this picture of Doc Brown and, and Marty McFly and Doc <laughs> Brown is explaining to him how the timeline has now changed. And, uh, and, and one of the ways that I, the reason why I come up with that analogy is because we've gone, what, what is this an exaggeration like 10 years into the future in one year's time in terms of the use of remote technologies to get our work done? And yeah, but
0: before, um, before you dive into that very interesting subject, I, I, I need to match your movie reference. Um, please. was a wonderful line in a terrible movie. Uh, it was the Gumball okay. Rally, and um, uh, which you I've know, never heard of, yeah. And and please, please. Do not do not go onto Netflix and rent this movie. It's it okay. it does not stand the test of time. It's deeply inappropriate in many ways and I'm ashamed to refer to it except for this one line in which this driver who's hired to drive the Ferrari fast across the country jumps into the car and removes the rearview mirror pulls it off the windshield and says first rule of italian driving whatever's behind you is gone. And so All we're gonna do is look through the the windshield and and drive fast and forward here uh, into the future. To your point, I completely agree. We have fast forwarded a bit around the use of technology, even though that we're not really using dramatically new technology today than we were like at the beginning of COVID. Just more people are using the existing technology that was present there. Right,
1: but yes, okay. But in, in in ways that are have fundamentally changed uh, people's perceptions of what can and can't be done, co-located, it's raised all these questions. you know, I mean, another way to ask the question, Dan, is given this, you know, when you look around and you're like, in, like entire organizations, both private and public sector, are doing their missions and their works somewhere in the ninety to hundred percent virtual environment. How long would it have taken us to get there if COVID hadn't happened? Um, and and probably a lot longer than you know than what we ended up.
0: I completely agree. When I was at GSA, we were we were kind of at the vanguard of this idea of the um, shared office space, tech enabled. Everyone gets a laptop, and I remember. I remember the incredulous looks I'd get from from visiting agencies over the idea that that you would assign everyone a laptop, that they could have, uh, um, you know, they could have a uh, uh an agreement that allowed them to work from home, that you know, that you would have Wi-Fi in the building, and I think now that's um, demonstrated that that that's kind of that's gonna be part of every workplace going forward. The question is to what degree.
1: Do you know that right before the pandemic, or or just before the pandemic, I went on the Gov Matters TV program with Francis Rose, and um, the topic we talked about was was federal agencies pulling back on telework, and I think it was EPA and Social Security and a few other agencies had announced that they were like narrowing telework flexibility for employees because they were kind of kind of calibrating back to becoming people being in the office um, so it's interesting how this thing ebbs and flows and then the pandemic hit and then we went to, to, to mass mass telework so you know th- there's a really interesting question that we now have to confront which is why and when do you need to co-locate um, and um, and does and, and and what are the risks Associated with these decisions and what are the opportunities? Because if you think about your work today and now this kind of knowledge that you have that you can flex to mass telework and not lo- and the sky doesn't fall in certain circumstances, doesn't that create a, a whole new open playbook you can write on how you're going to get your job done going forward as an organization?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think every 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 organization has had to kind of start. You know, writing or or reading or rewriting their playbooks. The question then is, are they going to say, well, that was that was interesting and just show back up with an expectation that they can pick a pick up the status quo ante. Or are they going to say, uh, you know, is there going to be pressure from employees? Is there going to be uh, financial pressure on you know when as lease terms come to an end? you know that i think the really big question is how do people handle that lesson that they learned uh, through covid yeah it's
1: interesting i um we you we were on a panel recently and you uh turned a phrase that really resonated with me around the question is is like and maybe i should let you do it but it's like what are we making in the um in the office, like what widget are we making that requires us to be there versus not? But why don't I turn it over to you to, to phrase the question correctly?
0: The big question we have to ask ourselves now is why do we have offices to begin with, right? The The, the notion of the office was really there because that's where our factors of production were. That's where the capital that you applied labor to get the outcome to create the product. But if there's no need for for you to go to the factory anymore the question is you know should the uh should they be paying for it and so i think the big question is less about where you do it but what you do and how you measure the success in doing it
1: yeah so um i was you know asking people was that
0: the question was that the question Did, was that yeah, you,
1: yeah and that really resonated okay. with me and uh, let me ask you if this resonates with you i've been studying up on on this question, um, you know, I've obviously, you know, I mentioned that I, I work at Boston Consulting Group and we get asked by a lot of our clients this this question these days in terms of how to think about this. And a framework that, 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 that we've come up with is to think about it along a continuum. And what we are finding is, is that the more kind of rote the task is, the more it can be done remotely, the more teaming and collaboration needed to create the widget the more you're going to kind of lean in towards at least some co-location so and i mean that might that that framework might work for some organizations and how they think about things but i think the key is is that it's that, that organizations are going to need to start having a calculus of when it's, it's good and, and appropriate and productive to do things remotely versus when co-location makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, the other thing is, and I think we talked about this on that panel, I think what it does is just dramatically increases the responsibility of the people running an organization to be clear-eyed about what it is they're trying to accomplish as an organization and what are the investments in, they need to make in people in, in, in place, in parts, and then I would say in culture, necessary to get the best possible outcome for the work. Um, the, the host of the panel, um, our former colleague, Norm Dong, asked the question, you know, are you trying to do, uh, uh, are you trying to get the work done or are you trying to get the best work or something to that effect? Yeah. I, I think the answer is always the latter. The, the question is, what do you assume are the ways you get there?
1: Yeah. Well, but, but there's there's intangibles, right? And, and so for me, it's an open question in terms of organizational culture, yes. you know, sense of employee engagement, connectivity, um, team building, a sense of alignment around purpose, you know, people who come to work in the government, you know, this this is timely because the, pe- the best places to work survey was just released. Um, uh, as you know, it comes out of the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. You know, NASA is the number one place for like the ninth year in a row. Uh, one of the things that that I talk about when people ask me about the FEVS and, and, and best places to work is, it's interesting that the one area where the public sector consistently does better than the private sector on questions of employee engagement is the employee's connection to mission and purpose, okay? So that's where like, so an employee at EPA will, will rank higher their connection to mission than an employee at General Motors, okay? And that, that, that's intuitive and it, and it resonates for the most part um can that is a powerful element to how we can hire talent retain talent build collaborative and innovative work environments keep our people engaged and on a learning journey and and we have to now figure out potentially how to do that remotely versus in person I'm not saying it can't be done but it's a muscle that needs to be potentially developed that we haven't developed yet.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and developing muscles is a uh, hard, painful <laughs> uh, uh, r- work that requires consistency, um, which is why I'm glad that this is a radio. This is a uh, audio program and not a video one. Um, but uh, the, um, the, this issue of culture development, organizational culture development, mission understanding and the shared storytelling that gets people excited about their work. To your point, I think it's very hard to do virtually. I mean, I I love going into the office in part because our office is a beautiful place and it's filled with wonderful people who I'm just intrigued by. To be perfectly honest, I'm probably not as productive in the office when everyone's there as i am if i'm like holed up in some windowless room in my house just you know whacking away at the at the keys but what i miss is then that connection to my to my colleagues and our broader mission by by the happenstance of running into them you know uh at the at the proverbial water cooler um and so i think I think then the question is: How do you, in a world in which the productivity can be delivered remotely without the investment in the space, how do you then maintain that connection and that desire for people to continue to participate in your work if there isn't that kind of cultural bond, if there isn't that kind of shared sense of wearing this together stuff?
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting question that that I could pose to you, which is, um, I remember. Uh, a few years before you went to GSA, there was like this kind of story coming out of New York City that Mayor Bloomberg had abandoned the mayor's office and created this large kind of like bullpen. And he was out with his team on a day-to-day basis, like in a cubicle, but like, you know, where he could see everyone. And it was like kind of a war room not that they were at war but like right. and then gsa went to that model
0: well like, we we had done it actually when i was uh the deputy mayor under mayor fenty um okay. uh we created these bullpens for both the mayor's office and the city administrator's office as the city administrator and then when did i gave, give
1: did i falsely give credit to bloomberg and i no have no no it, it was him. it
0: was it was we were we were imitating bloomberg um okay, and okay. bloomberg said look i'm a i'm a decision-maker, right? My job as mayor is simply to make decisions, right? Make choices, left, right, up, down, green, red, right? He said the best way to make the best decision is to have the most information, right? And do you think if I'm sitting alone in an office surrounded by police guards, I'm gonna get the best information? Or am I just gonna get the information that can filter its way through all those different you know, levels of um of, uh, of information dissemination prevention. <laughs> Great <laughs> setup,
1: Dan, that's amazing. Now I have my question
0: for Okay, sure. all right.
1: Is, can we achieve, if that is a noble objective and it resonates, yeah. can we achieve that virtually?
0: Well, I, I think in a way what you did was you 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 eliminated the structural, the physical structural and geographic hierarchy of the corner office, right? And went to more of a collaborative uh, shared place. I think in many ways, that's kind of the story of, you know, central computing to the internet, right? Now the question is, okay, if we can do it, if we can do it virtually, if we can leverage technology to do it virtually, can you maintain some of the, the control security uh, and hierarchy uh, necessary to get like a consistent message. And if you look, it's what, what's happened on the world of social media um, around news and information. Like, so the idea is that this gets you the best information. What we can see maybe in the on the news media side is maybe it actually begins to break down the mechanisms that provide you high quality information.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is to me kind of something that, that we're gonna have to iterate on and learn. I don't when 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 federal
0: agencies we're probably gonna have to make some yes, mistakes.
1: Government asks me, I say like we're gonna have to try different things. So for example, if you were to say, let's say there was a crisis, right? Let's say a, a hurricane or something. Um, and normally, what happens is at FEMA headquarters in D.C., everyone descends into mm-hmm. a war room and manages the crisis and there's a lot of running around and and can you do that virtually? Can everyone in that war room be with everyone on Zoom or, you know, or WebEx? And I don't know, I mean, it doesn't, my, my intuition says I'd rather be in person, but I'm also open to the idea that you can achieve that same mission because, and I think you brought this out in the panel, like when you're in the Situation Room at the White House, it's not like everyone's there. There's like right. people dialing in from all over the world with with real time information.
0: Right, and that that's the interesting thing about the Situation Room is you bring together the decision makers in one place so that they can share information with each other. But you're also bringing the best possible information as you that you possibly can into that discussion. Right, and so as we were talking about, everyone has like their own Situation Room in their pocket through like Zoom and FaceTime now. Right, you can you can Get together with someone physically and then bring in someone else virtually to have, you know, uh, as much, you know, operational visibility as possible. I do think about this hurricane example because there was this wonderful story um, that came out of GSA during Hurricane Sandy. You know, no actual work happens in the situation, right? There's decisions that are made, but the actual stuff that happens happens outside, right? In the case of a hurricane. Yes, decisions are made, but the tree that gets taken off the house happens in a specific neighborhood, right? And, and the flooded um, uh, uh, subway system has to be pumped in a particular place. So in order to do that, you need to have people you know, physically on the ground. We had this great GSA employee who was in the New York, New Jersey region. She lived in New Jersey, but all the federal buildings were closed in New York. And her job was to get contractors there to pump out the basements and get the electricity going and put on the phone lines, but she couldn't do it from home. She had no, while, while she had all the equipments to work, work virtually, because we had adopted this idea that everyone could work virtually in some way. So she had all the equipment, but she didn't have any of the, um, she didn't have electricity and she didn't have internet. So she drove around her neighborhood and found a pep boys, that had electricity from a generator and somehow still had their internet connection, convince them to let her use their Wi-Fi code to log on. So she could start sending contractors into the breach and and to begin to um, fix the problem. For me, that was an example. That was like a window, a keyhole into the future of a resilient tech enabled workforce that is focused on the mission and the outcome and could do the work wherever wherever, you know, they could find Wi-Fi connectivity to get it done. So um,
1: that goes back to my question of opportunity and strategy that um, that this like broadens what we should see as the art of the possible for how to get our missions done more effectively. I remember the first time I saw Google Earth, um, I, I, uh, thought to myself, I used to earlier in my career, I, I worked at the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. And one of the things we worked on was um, uh, enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And I, but with Google Earth, you could like, like count, you know, uh, we, wheelchair accessible parking spaces. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And never leave your office, you yeah. know, um, to see like if this construction site and the sh- new shopping center that went up, you know, did the right thing, um, and you never have to leave your office and it's much more efficient. Um, but let me let me pivot with our remaining time to the to the counterbalance on this. Can, which-
0: can, I, can I say one more thing though, and and I just want to get back to the point you made about culture and yeah, um, and the need to preserve that. like so just going virtually, it made it possible for this person, to um, discharge the mission, right? To demonstrate resilience and and creativity and initiative. The question I have is though, uh, how do you build the level of passion and commitment to an outcome and to a mission the way she demonstrated by going like who gets into their car after a hurricane and goes looking around for internet service, right? That is like the definition of a dedicated public servant. Um, And to your question is, is that something that can be developed virtually or do you still do you need a place where people come together to build that kind of connectivity and relationship? And and maybe I I don't know, I I see gamer communities where people are deeply committed to each other and never met each other. You know, so maybe maybe I'm stuck in a earlier generation on this subject, but I I still think that 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 level of initiative and commitment was reflective of, of a deeper connection to our organization and what it does that that, that comes from somewhere. You know, it, it, it actually involves some cultural uh, connection that has to be developed somewhere.
1: Yeah, I just thought of a really moronic movie analogy for that, but maybe not. Excellent,
0: Excellent. maybe that will make everyone forget the gumball rally.
1: Well, no, I'm just saying, for some reason, the movie Die Hard popped into my head and like Bruce Willis is stuck in the tower and he's, you know, kind of working uh, with the cop on the ground. And, you know, throughout the movie, they're connecting, have never met each other. It's just complete virtual. And they bond, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, they're like mm-hmm. best friends and they'd never met before because they went through this experience together. And you know, so I, you know, it's just it's it's a way of resonating with me that you can develop the sense that you're in the foxhole together, um, you know, fighting for an outcome or a mission, having never um, met in person. It's you know, it's definitely possible and needs to be possible in today's environment. And I think, a lot, and as you said that before the pandemic, there were a lot of people working remote. There were a lot of people living in the United States, you know, working for, you know, foreign companies just from their living rooms and, um, and a part of the team, which not, you know, teams in Europe, I'm here and I'm part of the team. Um, it's just something we're gonna have to learn. But let me, let me, with our remaining time, let me shift the question because um, I, you know, kind of, you know, going back to my like Google Earth, I just wanted to kind of make the point like now because I can do my job in my office I no longer have to buy that airline flight I no longer have to rent the car and I no longer have to book the hotel room right and so there's a major if everyone in the in the world suddenly changes their their habits by 30 or 40% less movement because because the world can be brought to them that that has that creates pain economic pain if it happens very quickly and so the question becomes like can we almost move too quickly because because people around us need that to progress and in interests around us need that to progress a little bit more slowly so the world can adjust to it
0: yeah well i um I, uh, I just heard from, uh, I just had a great phone call with my 97 year old dad uh, last night and uh, he, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, he, um, you know, he was born in 1924 in Boston where the horse was still a, you know, considered a, uh, a you know, it wasn't a rare form of conveyance. Um, he was telling me about a trip he took when he was three or four years old on a ferry from Boston down to New York through the Cape Cod Canal, um, and so I think about all the disruption, all the change, all the um, all the you know I don't know what to say transformation that happened in in that hundred years of his existence. Uh, telephones, television, uh, planes, um, you know the, the digital technology. We're you know we've talked on Zoom. Um, Inconceivable stuff for, for someone born in 1924. So my point would be, y- yes, I think there will be pain. I think there will be transition, but that's almost that's almost um, kind of the baseline condition that we deal with. I, I you know I I miss you know the the idea of taking a ferry from Boston to New York through the Cape Cod Canal. But you just can't do it he asked if that's still a thing can you still do it and i'm like no we can take a ferry from boston to provincetown but not not all the way to new york and you know trains i live five blocks from a railroad station and while there's a resurgence of trains you're not gonna you're not gonna unless you really want to and you're really committed to it you're not taking a train to los angeles would be so
1: <laughs> yeah I, I, I think that's inspirational. Like, yes, and it goes back to like, you know, a little bit. I was thinking two steps back, three steps forward. And um, as we evolve, you know, things, things change, industries change, um, and we have to be resilient around it. But you and I have been involved when we were in government in situations where, you know, you couldn't move. A building or move out of a building. If you know thirty federal employees were going to be displaced uh, because of the concern of the you know the the economic engine that 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 co-located federal workers bring. You know they 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 do dry cleaning, they buy lunches, they pay for parking, they they create yeah. a local economy when they're there. Um, and you if they at home, they're not doing that.
0: To move or close the Department of Agriculture uh, a field office, you actually have to have an assistant secretary go to the community to hold a hearing. And it was designed, frankly, as a, as a barrier to the consolidation movement or closure of those offices, regardless of whether you know, they're actually providing efficient or effective services. Knowing that in part, part of the program is to actually have people with buying power in communities doing what you're you're saying that that's a that's a part of the mission. Unstable.
1: Here's, here's I would love to eliminate, um, and I don't think this hurts anyone economically. The handshake. I think I think COVID should eliminate the handshake, and we can do fist bumps or bowing from now on. The other thing I'd like to eliminate, but this does have economic impact, is the tie. Like, I think, I think all, all uh, you know, like-minded people should band together and say, post pandemic, we're not gonna wear ties anymore.
0: No, I, I, I think you're, what you've just done is basically did what happened in the, in the early 60s uh, with the elimination of the hat.
1: <laughs> there you
0: go. You, used to, you know, you used to, you know it, people are like, ah, I can't ever see the tie going away. And, and, and my dad would say, you know, he, he really lamented the loss of the fedora you know, that was a really, that was a blow. Um, though. and as much All as, right. he, as much as he was a supporter of president Kennedy, he thinks he was kind of the, he was the harbinger. Oh,
1: that's true. Not at the inauguration. Nobody can wear a hat at the inauguration. It's too
0: exactly, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Danny. Well, I appreciate, uh, uh, episode 50 and the 49 that came before it. Um, uh, uh, I I look forward to the, the next the the next one.
1: 50. Yes. All right. That sounds like a toast, Dan. Have a All good right. one.
0: All right. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.